Hey, hey, Kermit, Kermit, I am ready to do my Robert Frost poetry reading. Uh, Fozzie, you can't do poetry on this show. Kermit, uh, look at all these cows. This show needs every bit of class it can get. Anyway, Kermit, my, my poetry is just as good as my comedy. It's that bad, huh? Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, how's the Kickstarter going? We funded. Uh, as of this evening, where we made it over the line. We still have a few days left in the campaign as of this recording, but uh, we crossed the finish line. Congratulations. Thanks. Anybody who wants to know what we're talking about, go back a couple episodes and... Uh, Listen to our little interview about Nick's game and his Kickstarter. By the time you hear this, it'll be closed, but you'll at least have an idea of what he's talking about. Yeah, there there should be some sort of a slacker backer option. But And you said your March uh, was going to be rough. How's it been? We're almost done. Uh, we are almost done. My day job moved offices, and that's mostly settling down. The Kickstarter is still running, and uh, I'm only vaguely sleep deprived or you know not looking at it too closely take your pick uh this is a feed of lunatic daring we're a podcast about jim henson and the muppets before we get started talking about muppet show season four i'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on instagram facebook and twitter uh and then lunaticdaring.com where you can find our watch list our bibliography and our, all of our episodes uh, also while you're at it uh give us a review or uh, just a rating on your podcast app of choice whether it be spotify or apple podcasts or google or stitcher or wherever the hell you're listening you know give us a little rating it'll be it'll help like i said we're currently going through the muppet show season four two episodes at a time tonight a little bit of a lull in my opinion we, we have some shiny spots that I'll get to, uh, but it was, I, I feel bad because I have a hard time being objective when we get to the folk or country episodes. Not that I completely shut out or I don't watch them or anything like that. I just feel like I exist outside of their target audience. That's fair. That's fair. Um, during the second episode, my eight-year-old, almost nine-year-old looked at me and said, I agree with Statler and Moldorf." <laughs> Oh, how so, often does she say that? I've never heard her say that. <laughs> oh, wow. She was getting, I think they just made a comment about it being boring and she was kind of bored. So mm-hmm. my five-year-old, almost six-year-old didn't say anything because she was already asleep. First, we'll start off with Mr. Dudley Moore and go from there. Ready to get started? Let's get started. Oh, Dudley, Dudley Moore, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Moore. I'm going to make a confession here. I don't like Dudley Moore. As a guest or in general? Never been a fan. I've seen a couple of his movies. He just never really did it for me. So tell me what I don't know about Dudley Moore. Dudley Moore, born to Ada Francis, who was a secretary, and John Moore, who was a railway uh, a railway engineer from Glasgow on the 19th of April in 1935, had a bit of a rough childhood. Uh, he was pretty short. He had club feet, which means that he was target of a lot of bullying in school. Uh, he had to undergo some, what I have to assume is some pretty excruciating corrective treatment, which, to which his right foot responded well, but his left foot was permanently twisted and withered below the knee. So that's a rough start. Yeah. But around the time that he, he was able to get his right foot to respond pretty well, uh, he joined a choir. And in that space, he was able to flourish a bit. By 11, he'd earned a scholarship to the Guildhall School of Music where he took up harpsichord, organ, violin, theory, and composition. So he was he got really, really into it. Uh, by the time he was 14, he was playing organ at local church weddings. From there, he went to Dagenham County High and later attended Magdalen College uh, in Oxford on a music scholarship, where he would be tutored by Bernard Rose. Uh, at this time, he shifts a little bit from classical and start to, starts developing a love for jazz and working with Musicians such as John Dankworth and former Muppet guest star Cleo Lane. Uh, during the 60s, he would form the Dudley Moore Trio with drummer Chris Curran and bassist Pete McGurk. After university, uh, John Bassett, who was someone that he had performed with, would recommend him to producer Robert Ponsonby, and I hope I didn't mispronounce that, he, who was putting together a comedy review called Beyond the Fringe. And this is where 
Dudley's career really starts to sort of find its legs. They played shows in Edinburgh and they had a lukewarm response there, but they would transfer the show to London and it went under a little bit of revision and became a sensation. They would later cross the pond and JFK would attend a performance in New York on the 10th of February in 1963. Moore would return to the UK in 1964 and he would be offered his own series by the BBC entitled Not Only But Also. On Not Only But Also, in one of the early episodes, uh, Moore invited Peter Cook, who had been one of his uh, performing buddies up to that point, as a guest on Not Only But Also. And their chemistry was so notable that Cook just became a regular fixture. And those two would have a long on-again, off-again performing partnership. They would appear in Bedazzled 1967, which would be the inspiration for the remake, starring Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley as well as films like Monte Carlo or Bust and The Bed Sitting Room. Uh, in 1968, he got married for the first time to Susie Kindle. They would be divorced by 1972. Um, at the same time this is going on, his relationship with Cook sours, uh, because Cook had a bit of a drinking problem, and it just got worse. They would create another stage review called Behind the Fringe, or excuse me, Behind the Fridge, which I think was a play on Beyond the Fringe in 1972. And this show would win them Tony and Grammy Awards. Uh, it would take them to the U.S. again, but at this point, Moore would decide that he wanted to stay in the U.S. and head to Hollywood to pursue a film career. And he would reunite with Cook to co-host SNL in 1974 and a, a few other times after that, but it was never for very long. Cook would pass in 1995. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, but it's said that Moore would often phone, Cook, phone Cook's home in London in order to hear his voice on his old answering machine. So I, I don't think there was any ever a lack of affection or anything like that. I, at some point, Moore just realized that he couldn't keep working with him. Sad tidbit for later, people noted that Moore was behaving very strangely at Cook's memorial, but they assumed that it was grief for him being drunk. Um, this might have been one of the earliest signs of the the debilitating progression that would later take his life, uh, would later take Moore's life. But back to the seventies in 1975, Moore would marry for the second time to Tuesday Weld, who was another actress. They would have a son the following year. He received a supporting role in the film foul play in 1978 with Goldie Hawn and Chevy chase. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but I, I haven't. I've seen it. He would find his breakout role in Blake Edwards 10 in 1979. The following year, he would divorce Weld. Um, in 1981, he starred in what was probably the only role of his that I was aware of before uh, seeing this this episode. But uh, he starred as Arthur in the movie Arthur alongside Liza Minnelli. And I really hope I don't mispronounce this guy's name because he's a sir, but Sir John Gilgood. Uh, Close enough. <laughs> earning him an Oscar nomination for the best actor. He didn't win the Oscar that year, but it, it was apparently a close thing. He opened a restaurant with Tony Bill in 1983 called the 72 Market Street Oyster Bar and Grill in Venice, California. He did continue producing films in the 80s, but they never really caught the same success. He would be featured in This Is Your Life twice, uh, which was a feature or was an inspiration for one of our episodes last time. Uh, once in 1972 and once in 1987. In 1988, he would marry for... <laughs> this Is Your Life twice. Okay. Yeah, it's... Just to double dip a little bit. Congratulations, uh, you lived longer than we thought you were going to. <laughs> childhood. Uh, in 1988, he would marry Brogan Lane, uh, though they would divorce in 1991. Uh, it is important to note that for his, with his first three wives, he would maintain a good relationship, uh, although he would expressly forbid the fourth wife from attending his funeral. <laughs> On a related right. note, he would... Be arrested in, 1980, in 1994 on a charge of a domestic assault for his then-girlfriend and later fourth wife, Nicole Rothschild. They would marry in April of that year and remain married until 1998. By 1995, uh, Dudley was having trouble remembering his lines, which would get him fired from Barbra Streisand's The Mirror Has Two Faces. People treated it as though he was being unprofessional. Uh, they assumed that he'd been drinking too much, but it was the the progression of that medical condition. Seeing that this was an issue, he opted to leave film and focus on piano, but the complications are showing up there as well, and he couldn't get his fingers to do what he wanted them to do. 
1997, he was informed that he had calcium deposits in the basal ganglia of his brain and irreversible frontal lobe damage. In September of that year, he underwent quadruple coronary artery bypass surgery in London, and he also suffered a, a number of strokes besides. September of 1999, he announced that he was suffering from progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a Parkinson which is a Parkinson plus syndrome, wherein the early symptoms appear similar to being drunk. He would die three years later on March twenty seventh, two thousand two, as a result of pneumonia in relation to palsy caused immobility. Rena Fruchter was a journalist, NFL pianist, and a close friend of his that he was living with at the time, and she held his hand as he passed. I have no idea how to transition from that. It <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not making light of it at all. It's no, it's fine. It's fine. It was a rough life. Like he found success, and that's great. But he, out of the gate, to the way that it ended, it's a rough go. And we are now going to talk about the episode with as much objectivity as we can. <laughs> uh, I mean, I started this off saying I don't like him, so it's all, it's all good. Everyone's living out their uh, their own personal. Of course, I I um I've seen ten, I've seen Foul Play, I've seen Arthur, just never just never been a fan. That's all. Hmm. So the Muppet Show episode four hundred seven, featuring guest star Dudley Moore, produced between June twelfth and June fourteenth, nineteen seventy nine. It premiered in the UK on October twenty ninth of the same year, and four days earlier in the states on October twenty fifth. We head to our cold open where Scooter steps in uh, and finds Dudley trying to tune the piano. He asks Scooter if he can if he ah, yeah. he asks Scooter if he can give him an A and Scooter just pulls out a gun. I don't know why Scooter went into Dudley's dressing room holding a gun. Um, I don't know how often he goes into other guest stars' rooms holding a gun. Is Scooter always packing? I don't. Maybe that's why he's always got that placid expression. <laughs> is he always <laughs> strapped? And his internal monologue is just him being like. I could shoot this person, but my uncle owns the theater. We've discussed the fact that Scooter may be a sociopath. It turns out he's strapped the whole time. Right. But the thing is, he also has enough self-control to never actually shoot someone. Scooter might have, if he's strapped the entire time and he hasn't shot anyone yet, he has got the most self-control of any Muppet, except for maybe Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. The chef is armed too. But the chef doesn't have self-control. And the thing is... You can see the chef. The chef doesn't even have a subtle gun. It's a blunderbuss. The accuracy on that thing is off. It's not even like a repeating rifle. It's full on, throw the ball in, stuff it down a little bit, throw in some gunpowder, blah. Damp it down. Yeah. It's scooters in there like, no, I can hide this inside of my green coat. You're not even going to see the outline. It's fine. It's like a derringer. It's like he's going in there to, in there to kill Lincoln. He never blinks. It's just, it's upsetting. Um, but Scooter shoots the letter A from the ceiling. It's like a, it's like a twisted Sesame street sketch. It is. But also I wonder if Scooter has fired the gun before. I wonder if Scooter's just not fired the gun at a person so he can make it look like an accident. I was shocked by Scooter with a gun. Yeah. It's upsetting. But we go from there to the Muppet show. I'm going to, I'm going to assume he's armed from here on out as we should as Kermit should really for the rest of the show. I'm going to assume Scooter is armed. So we go to the Muppet Show theme, and there's going to be a link between the Muppet Show theme and our first sketch. But first, Waldorf warns Statler to be careful about what they say, because they think the place might be bugged, where we see the first little bit of nightmare fuel. Um, And then it graduates, because Gonzo also turns into a bug before he can play his trumpet. And these bugs are, like, very shiny, very dark, beetly. Glittery. And the thing is... Yeah, in tandem with my nightmare fuel of movies that I shouldn't have seen in the late 80s or early or from the late 80s or early 90s, there's a particular science fiction film featuring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis <laughs> that I probably shouldn't have seen because, you know, nightmares. This and, is a new one. In particular, a specific nightmare sequence because in Earth Girls Are Easy, there's a section where <laughs> Jeff or Gina Davis has this nightmare after sleeping with Jeff Goldblum's character, who's an alien about these aliens sneaking into her window. And like, I don't know, some sort of a weird pregnancy scare thing. But I remember seeing that in an early age and thinking, I want David Damon Wayne's to come back on screen because at least I'm going to laugh then. But all of the like weird effects, practical effects in that were terrifying at a young age. And for whatever reason, seeing these bugs triggered that memory, but we don't just see them during the opening. No, they're, uh, 
a talented group of young unknowns, and they also perform yeah. the opening number, uh, which is She Loves You by the Beatles, their famous song from 1963. And it's a good performance. Like, it's a good bit. All of our opening numbers have been solid. I'm just like half freaked out as I watch the bugs the entire time. They're probably very nice bugs. It's also just a pun. Yeah. That they're, they're the Beatles. I didn't catch that. I should have. I probably would have if I hadn't been like on edge. But yeah, because when he says a talented group of unknowns, he's kind of making a, a reference to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and maybe this will maybe it'll work out for him because they're coming out and they're a bunch of bugs and they come out and play, you know, one of the first Beatles first singles. Mm-hmm. I think one of their first singles, early single. Obviously. But uh, I did write what the fudge is up with these things. Yeah, it's they play their bodies as instruments. They don't have instruments. They play some part of their body. I mean, we've all seen James and the Giant Peach. It's it's a thing that bugs apparently do, especially if they're crickets. But it's just it's very David Cronenberg to me. Yeah, it goes kind of Cronenberg. That wasn't the movie that I was referencing because somehow I avoided that one. But it it does. <clears throat> but we go backstage after the number and Kermit recommends that the group finds a, a new band name, at which point one mentions the Grateful Dead, which makes more sense now that you make the Beatles reference. Uh, but, you know, you fellas should find a name for your group. We were thinking of something like the Grateful Dead. The who? Nah, it's been done. And oh Alexander God. Beatle says that it's been done already. I love that his name is Alexander Beatle. I love that we actually have a name for him. <laughs> Does that mean we're going to see him again? I don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, you relax. I strange times, but Dudley Moore approaches Kermit to ask if they're ready for his number yet. And Kermit lets him know that they aren't because the band doesn't know the arrangements and Dudley introduces. So this is clearly a knockoff R2D2. It's called mama, uh, which stands for music and mood management apparatus. But while it does look a little bit like an R2D2 knockoff, I'm also reminded of actresses that you'll see in like period dramas where, on stage, they look like super formal. Like Lena Headey in Game of Thrones looked exactly like she should have looked for that era. But if you ever see her in interviews, like there's this huge tattoo on her wrist, and like this oh, yeah. is the real Lena Headey. And just is this the real R two D two? Is R two D two actually bougie when R two D two isn't in Star Wars? You mean when he doesn't have his makeup on? Or just like I just I'm imagining R two D two rolling around with like a bunch of jewelry and like fur on, but then going super method when R two D two's on screen and just being like. This is me getting in touch with my inner Jared Leto. And then offstage, I can just be like full Gaga and it's great. But he's going to be on the Muppet Show in a few weeks. It's true. Maybe this is his less popular brother. Yeah, I was thinking this is kind of his like mongoloid cousin because he actually says um, Kermit actually says he looks like a freak from Star Wars. Or like, what does he say? He looks like a he looks like a, a fugitive from Star Wars. Kermit mm-hmm. says. They're, they're clearly making an R2-D2 reference with it. Yes, mm-hmm. for sure. But it's I mean, it's a music machine. Yeah. Sound droid. That's going to be our backstage story. Marvin, the paranoid android. Dudley has brought... Mama! (laughs) Like a fugitive from Star Wars. (laughs) Its name is Mama, huh? Yeah. Uh, Music and mood management apparatus. Mama. Plays anything you want? Exactly. Gee, is it any good? Is it any good? Mm -hmm. This is the ultimate achievement. This is man's synthesis of science and art. This is the Sistine Chapel of innovation. It's good, huh? I think that's one of the things, and we'll we'll definitely come back to it again in this episode and the next episode, but we're mean to a couple of my favorite Muppets this episode, or this week. Yeah. And it's, it's a little upsetting, but... This, I mean, this is clearly just about the fear of um, automation. Oh yeah. It's auto tune. <laughs> it's this whole episode is about, about the fear of automation. All those kids on Bandcamp. Um, yeah, all those robots, all those robots taking your jobs. Hmm. But mama takes us directly into the, at the dance, which I didn't, I keep thinking at the dance is gone and it keeps coming back. Hey, we don't see it very often. It's been a while. It has. And it's a disco themed one, but also all of the jokes are revolving around Fozzie coming in and just laying pun after pun after pun. Hey, hey, everybody, hey, listen. Hey, what is green waves its arms and is found in Chinese restaurants, huh? I don't know. What is green waves its arms and is found in Chinese restaurants? Kermit the egg roll. These are some bad jokes. 
The only one I like is, and it's one of my favorites, which is why the... Why did the duck cross the road? I don't know why did the duck cross the road! <sighs> because he was tied to the chicken! When I was a kid, it was always because it was stapled to the chicken. You know, that's a classic. But uh, the others are real. The puns are real bad. But yeah, so it's like, it, it, they call it At The Dance, and it's a disco version of the At The Dance theme, but it doesn't play out like At The Dance. It's changed a couple of times, though. Like, they've varied on the theme a little bit, but... Yeah, yeah. it just structurally isn't the same. I, I think this is Dudley's first number. Dudley plays Mama Don't Allow with backup from Mama, right in front of Dr. Teeth. Here's the thing about doing this. It'd be one thing if it was just the two of them on stage, but if you're going to bring the mayhem on stage and tell the mayhem not to play... I won't be needing you. I'll be doing this with Mama. I guess there wasn't time for Kermit to, like get the message to the band because and they're you know like I, he I, he could have told him during he could have during at the dance he could have run and found the band and told them mm-hmm. but i guess he didn't feel the need um or maybe he just didn't believe i don't know but uh yeah no it is kind of mean he comes in and he brings in this machine and he looks to the electric mayhem the electric freaking mayhem and goes uh i don't need you guys <laughs> sorry yeah my You're one good. note was just why is he being mean to the mayhem like <laughs> yeah it's entirely possible that they're going to party too hard or they might be obnoxious if you ever do meet them, but you don't go up to meet the mayhem and not be excited. If you find out the mayhem is in a room that you're going into, you should feel at least one butterfly because it's the mayhem. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I kind of felt it too. Oddly enough, I kind of felt it too. I was very, I was angry at him. That was, that was part of my problem too. I think like the storyline, the storyline doesn't do him any favors. no. But the way that he plays it, because I think, I, I don't remember exactly where it was, but at some point Statler and Waldorf make a, a note about him looking like he needs to escape. And I'm like, honestly, there's no irony in that statement. No, it does look <laughs> like he wants out of there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and not in a fun, like, John Cleasy way, like mm. where that's the storyline. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't. I'm not in his shoes, wasn't in his shoes, but it does feel like it, it doesn't 100% look like he wants to be there. No, But it's, it's not helped by the fact that his storyline makes him unlikable. Yeah. His storyline is in direct conflict. Like his storyline is, no, I don't care about the band. I want to use this thing. And this thing is causing chaos throughout the entire show. And he seems unrepentant about all of it, except for a key moment, the best moment in the episode. <laughs> from the number we go backstage and floyd i mean points to floyd because floyd oh, is wait, before, before that uh, uh before that real quick um uh dr t did have a great line though where he said it ain't got that swing if it's made by a thing <laughs> that is a good take that edm but yeah we we go backstage and floyd wants to know what's with the electric no man band and Kermit says that it's an experiment, but you, if anyone's ever worked in like any sort of service job where you've got management that might be trying to phase your job out, you can see the writing on the wall in the process of doing so Floyd's like, that doesn't mean it can play for the rest of the show. And Kermit just takes that as a suggestion. He's like, that's a great idea. <laughs> Kermit did not read the room very well at all in this moment. Here's where we have one of the rare occasions where we have Kermit and Rolf on stage at the same time. And Floyd just goes to Rolf who just looks super dejected. <laughs> Hey, Rolf, where are you going? Wait a minute, man. Hey, we got to present a solid front on this. Uh, you do the solid front bit. I'm going to call this monkey I know who's looking for an organ grinder. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I got to go find a new job because Rolf can read the room. The girls got very sad about Rolf, too. Who Rolf, can be Rolf mad at Rolf? At Rolf is like the sweetest Rolf. Well, he's not mad. He no, nobody's mad at Rolf. He just he just thinks his career is over and he's skulking away. And everybody got real sad for him here. Well, it's a sad day for musicians. Yeah, I can almost hear Beethoven turning over in his grave. From there, we go to the Swine Trek and our friends in Pigs in Space. When last we left the spaceship Swine Trek, it was being followed by a mysterious object. Oh. It, it looks like one of those things that scientists send up from Earth. What do you call them? Satellite. Of course it's a light. <laughs> looks like a lot of lights, but what do you call it? Dr. Julius Trainspork announces over the intercom that they have discovered that he has discovered the identity. But 
will not reveal what it is until after he's made an entrance, which is actually kind of a nice touch. Also, his Link, entrance is great. Yeah. yeah. Did Link get a haircut? He looks a little different. I don't know. Just a, like, there's a like a different. comb over. Like it's not full Trump, but it's still like. <laughs> it's not It's not far. <laughs> when he steps onto the stage, heroic music echoes throughout the ship. <laughs> was sent up here to underscore this sketch. The object is Mama, in a darker tone, sent to underscore the sketch. Um, Looks like a Doctor Who villain. Yeah, it does. Uh, a nice yeah. touch, though, is anytime Link speaks, it just gives you dunce music. Your captain is here! <laughs> yeah, like just, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> someone messed up on the prices, <laughs> right? Just... Link even catches it too. He's like, hey, why does it make that dumb music whenever I talk? (laughs) One day he'll get it. Oh, no, he won't. But yeah, we find out that Mama has been sent to underscore the sketch. And he plays a bunch of stings and and stuff. Does have one kind of not okay moment with Piggy. Uh, Yeah, it it starts playing sort of like stereotypical risque music. Burlesque type music. Yeah. Um, it, that I don't mind as much as Strange Pork and Link catcalling her. The thing is, with Link doing that, based on our pre-existing theory, I have to wonder if they're just like not being affected by the music at that point, because it's no, nah, they're catcalling her. Yeah, <laughs> they're catcalling her. They're they're because she says uh, they because she says I'm leaving, and they go, No, you're not. And she goes, Watch me, and then. She walks away, the music kicks in, and then they start hooting and hollering. And she goes, what are you doing? They're like, you told us to watch you. So, yeah, no, they're catcalling her, which is, gentlemen, not okay. Not okay. But it is funny when Piggy's like, is this thing going to be making noise the whole sketch? I'm out of here. Piggy, Piggy has been having, with Pigs in Space lately, Piggy's been losing her patience. She never had a lot to begin with. No, but she's been losing her patience because this is a, like the second or third time where she's been like, oh, this is the sketch. No, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm not doing She did it when Gon- when Dirt Nader came on and she and it was Gonzo and she was like, it's Gonzo. Nope, I'm out of here. From there, we go to our UK spot, which is it's a send up of like the old films and soap operas. But Kermit comes to Miss Piggy's dressing room and Miss Piggy has a very important question to ask, which I think we're all expecting the same thing, relatively speaking, and because Mama's it, well, and it's yeah, it's played with the big romantic music under it, right? Mm. Dramatic music. There is something you can do that would make moi very, very happy. Well, well, tell me what it is. You know what it is. I, I do. Of course you do. You must. Oh, Piggy, are, are you trying to say yes? Kermit! And Miss Piggy keeps sort of like dangling that carrot, and well, it's very important. And you know, like you kids know. were hiding their heads at that point because it's all very well coded. And then it turns yeah, out, cause they, cause, yeah, because they thought there was going to be kissing. Yeah, which Kermit probably wouldn't do willingly, but my dressing room sink is stopped up again. <laughs> I'll send Scooter up with a plunger. Good. <laughs> And he just goes, oh, uh, I'll go. I'll send Scooter up with a plunger. <laughs> <laughs> Simple fixes. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of shoe leather for that punchline, by the way. Oh, yeah. It goes on for a while. That's a long, it's a long walk for that joke. The The joke is entirely the, the soundtrack. Piggy doesn't want to let Kermit leave. Um, not because she wants him in this particular case, but because something evil works on the other side of the door. Evil, she says. I have this feeling there is something terrible outside. Wait, dear. Oh. Piggy, don't be silly. There's nothing outside that door to worry about. Yes, there is. There's something out there. There's something evil. The way Frank says evil there's, is phenomenal. There are a couple of echoes to the... Uh, e- evil. To the Vincent Price episode with how they're using Mama in this episode. Um, and specifically the way that it's being used to sort of build dread. Um, and then Kermit, afraid of being stuck in a room with Miss Piggy, struggles to get past. And once we open the door, we see Mama, which honestly you probably could have seen coming a mile away. But it is weird that this is the UK spot. 
Yeah, it doesn't change the story at all, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it it, it is kind of weird. It does feel like it's part of the episode. But um, yeah, this was, I thought this was funny. I thought this was funny. They said Fr- Frank, when Frank gets to the door and he's trying to keep Kermit in the room, it's Piggy dot up to 11. Oh, yeah. And then Kermit, and then that sets Jim off and Kermit's screaming at her. And it gets real intense, and and, it, and and then the music is swelling. It's so loud. It's like a P.T. Anderson movie. And, like, it just, like, it gets to the point where you can barely hear the dialogue until he opens the door, and it's just the robot. So we get to see Dudley again uh, as he sings Strictly for Birds uh, while he plays his piano. But... <laughs> You don't go too far into that because Floyd and animal show up. And here's the thing that I love about Floyd. Cause you, the, you, before you see any sort of a chain, you hear it, right? You know exactly yeah. why he brought animal there. Oh yeah. Can I bring my friend with me? We don't need to go to a second location. We're right here. Floyd has a bone to pick with the guest star and he brought backup. And he's going to pick the bone out of animal's teeth, but they've come to talk to Dudley about the music machine. As members of the band. Band. <laughs> Yeah, we come here to have it out with you about this music machine you got. Uh, right, yeah. Uh, I, I, I know we have differing opinions on the subject, so it's probably best to talk about it. Yeah, I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah, well, uh, why don't we openly and, and freely uh, express our feelings on, on the subject? Good. I feel that that cheap jive jukebox is going to put an end to the gig for the band, man. I mean, we haven't worked all night, and it's your fault. Your fault, Dudley. Probably reading the room a little bit, saying, why don't we all express our feelings on the matter a little bit? Uh, But the band's feelings are, quote, that cheap jive jukebox is going to put an end to the gig for the band. Um, And Dudley gives them... Fear of automation. Yeah. Which, fair. Uh, But Dudley tries to give them a line about how progress and innovation are a great thing. But it doesn't really work. I also... Uh, true advances of the human spirit. And I, I don't feel that we, we should <laughs> let, um, let uh, temporary or, or personal considerations stand in, in, in the way. Uh, how, how do you feel about that animal? Kill! Kill! Animal just says kill, kill, and I don't think I've ever heard animal say kill. <laughs> but there's... <laughs> There's this moment where animal, you, you see animals' patience just dwindling, and he gives you that lowbrow look, and he's just like, "Why is he still talking?" Kill! Kill! Well, he even says he he spends the whole time. He's just while Dudley is talking, he's animals sitting next to him, clearly intimidating him, mm-hmm. and also hitting him with his bad breath. That's part of the intimidation factor. <laughs> it's the dog breath. Dudley finally gets his point done, which he does very poorly. An animal looks at the camera, and he opens his eyes. And he goes, kill! Yeah! And he turns around and just savages him. Best part of the episode. Oh, Best yeah. moment of the episode. <laughs> and the build to it is great, too. Like, you see Floyd there, like, I just wanted to scare him a little bit. I don't want the kill count. Like, yeah. I don't know. I think Floyd was okay with what happened. <laughs> um, but sometimes the problems fix themselves uh, because in our next sketch, we get to see Gonzo. <laughs> Floyd, Floyd calls Kermit old man frog in this, in this scene, too. <laughs> He's like, old man frog won't want to cut his checks anymore. <laughs> he called him turtle bait earlier, too, which do turtles eat frogs? I don't. I don't know. He called him turtle bait and he also called him uh, like cricket breath or something. For our next sketch, Gonzo's in there requesting complete silence, which. On the episode with the magical music machine is a pretty good setup, but this is a problem working itself out because Mama does come on stage by Gonzo. And I feel like Mama was lighter earlier in the episode, but as it's gone on, her palette is just darker. <laughs> I think you're reading too much, but go ahead. But um, Gonzo is trying to defuse a bomb while reciting Percy B. Shelley. And yeah, he's reading To a Skylark by Percy Shelley. Hail to thee, blithe spirit. Bird the... Bird thou never wert. The reason I know it's to a Skylark 
is because I know this sketch so well that <laughs> I had to look up years ago. I would get I would get the first line of this trapped in my head, and I had to look it up years ago to find out what it was actually from because mm. I learned it from this. Hail to thee, blithe spirit, mm. bird thou never wert. But I have never really been comfortable interpreting poetry. It's like weird high school trauma. Um, but Mama interrupts Gonzo while he's doing this, and the bomb explodes, which... For Gonzo is a perfect finish. And honestly, for Jim is a perfect finish because something exploded or someone got eaten. But it blows up the whole half the theater and most of the stage. And Mama, most importantly. And, my, and most importantly, Mama. Yeah. Um, but all that Mama will play now is Japanese kabuki music. And Kermit. Racist or no? Uh, I feel like it's too much of a non sequitur. I don't think it. I think you could have subbed that in for anything, and it would have played out the exact same if it was mariachi music. If it was, I was just wondering if his distaste of it was racist because um, he was because Kermit does he's like Japanese kabuki music. I I heard that as him sounding kind of confused, like it was out of left yeah, field. Okay. But um, Kermit, hat in hand, metaphorically speaking, uh, requests that the mayhem finishes the show and promises <laughs> to never think about hiring another band. Um, and the best part about this is they have a huddle. Uh, let us deliberate. Uh, no, 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 no. Pretty pleased no. with cream and sugar on top? No. Okay, you got it. Okay. And then they agree. They're like, yeah, we'll do it. It's fine. At which point, Dudley looking the most uncomfortable he's looked all episode, but also probably the most justifiably uncomfortable that he's looked all episode. Yeah, it's intentional. Yeah. Plays in the wreckage of the stage, playing a song called How High the Moon, which is best known for a performance by Ella Fitzgerald. But the theater is falling apart around them. Every time Animal goes in on the drums, another piece of debris falls from the ceiling, and you see Dudley sort of flinch. I think Dudley just assumes that Animal wants to hurt him, which, to be fair, Animal definitely wants to hurt him. But Animal does want to hurt him, yes. Or, or he did. Yeah, they're all wearing hard hats. I like I like that touch, that they're all wearing hard hats because they're performing in what's left of the theater. Mm -hmm. That look of d discomfort on Dudley's face, too, is just him being like, well, the theater's broken, I can go home. And Kermit being like, no, you're under contract. Yeah, you got one more song. Get out there, song and dance, man. I will say, you know, listening to your bio was interesting to me because... I only knew Dudley Moore as an actor and comedian. Mm. So this episode, now knowing more of his back, backstory, um, not the sad stuff, but just his training and everything, knowing more about that makes this episode a little feel a little better for me because I kept waiting for him to be funny and he spends the entire time at the piano. Mm. Like everything he does is at the piano. He doesn't do any, there's the one scene with Animal, but besides that, he doesn't do any sketches. He doesn't do any real comedy. He does, he plays at the piano and he, yeah, he does it with a light touch and he does it comedically, but it was very shocking to me to see this guy that I knew from movies like 10 and movies like the, you know, uh, Arthur, which is not a subtle performance and to see him playing piano the entire time. I know it felt weird to me. It makes more sense now that I hear, you know, what you had, what you dug up about him. I think that was a safe space. That was where he first found, yeah. like music is where he first found a place to belong. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the episode, we have Dudley with a repaired mama, because of course it's a repaired mama, um, playing a medley of songs over the end credits. It's kind of funny. After talking through this episode with you, I like it more. Mm. I wasn't fond of it when we sat down. And then after talking through it with you, eh, it wasn't that bad. It's, yeah, um, it's, it's all right. I was a little irked by how they treated the mayhem, but that's just because I'm a fan of the mayhem. And, and I think you're right. He feels so, he feels fairly disengaged. Mm -hmm. That's probably its biggest drawback to me is he feels disengaged. But it's got a couple of funny moments. It's got a classic Gonzo sketch. It's got some great, you know, because, yes, he's messing with the mayhem. But because of that, we get lots of mayhem. True. So that's good. We get a couple of great lines out of them. We get, you know, so. Kill, kill. I don't know. Yeah, uh, not, not, not my favorite episode. But like I said, I, I think I warmed to it a little bit. Mm. <laughs> I know you're a big folk and country guy. Uh, I like some folk. It's an interesting episode. One episode was mean to a set of my favorite Muppets, and this episode is mean to a different one of my favorite Muppets, which usually he gets his comeuppance, but multiple times. Yeah. Like, they're just running him through the ringer. 
Musician and activist Arlo Davy Guthrie was born July 10th, 1947 in Brooklyn. His mother, Marjorie, was a dancer, and his father was the legendary folk singer-songwriter Woody Guthrie. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. He went to the Woodward School in Brooklyn up through 8th grade then moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he attended high school and graduated in 1965. He would live in Massachusetts for most of his life. He then attended Rocky Mountain College in in Billings, Montana, but that didn't last very long. Uh, But he was out on Thanksgiving break during his brief stint there, and he wrote his most famous song at the age of 18. It's called Alice's Restaurant Massacre, an 18-minute talking blues song named after a librarian at his boarding school who then went on to open up a restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. The song is mostly known as anti-Vietnam song, protesting the draft, but Guthrie would later say that it was more of an anti-stupidity song than an anti-war song. It, along with a successful performance at the Newport Folk Festival, got Arlo his first recording contract. The nearly 20-minute track would, would be one whole side of his debut album, Alice's Restaurant, and would later be adapted into a 1968 film from Bonnie and Clyde director Arthur Penn. Arlo also acted in that movie. He had a few notable singles early on, including a song called City of New Orleans and Coming Into Los Angeles, although the former didn't get a lot of radio play because it was about smuggling drugs. Although he did get to play it at Woodstock because it was about smuggling drugs. In the fall of 1975, Arlo debuted his band Shenandoah. Uh, They toured and recorded throughout the 70s and into the 80s, and they were received well, but never, never really took off as well as his solo career. His best received work came on his 1976 album Amigo earning five stars from Rolling Stone. He has, played it, he has played with the likes of Pete Seeger, Willie Nelson, Judy Collins, John Prine, and many others. In the 80s, he shot a, f- a pilot for, guess what, Nick? A TV variety show called The Arlo Guthrie Show. But uh, it didn't stick. Everybody gets a show. It, it just feels weird coming from a folk singer, though, somehow. Politically, Arlo has been all over the place, starting with his father's left-leaning politics and his early music, being anti-war and anti-Nixon and stuff, to registering as a Republican in 2008, to later denouncing the party as he is not a fan of their support of Donald J. Trump. He currently considers himself an independent, suspicious of both American political parties, which is a cop-out but fair. In October of 2020, which seems like so long ago, doesn't it? Uh, Guthrie announced his retirement from entertainment. He's been married twice and has four children, all of whom are musicians. He's 74. I made this comparison off the air, but to me, and this may be insulting to Arlo Guthrie, I apologize to the man. He's not listening. He is too Woody Guthrie is like Ziggy Marley is to Bob Marley. Next generation, same type of music, kind of living in the shadow never quite getting out of the shadow and never entirely trying to folk so folk music was the family business but he definitely had his fans muppet show number 408 special guest star arlo guthrie produced june 19th through 21st 1979 came out in december of that year in the cold opening uh scooter comes in and arlo uh scooter comes in and calls for arthur godfrey that arthur godfrey has a uh curtain call in 15 seconds Arthur Guthrie was a um, radio personality in the 1940s and 50s, kind of a big deal. Mm. But Arlo's like, what are you talking about? My name is Arlo Guthrie, not Arthur Godfrey. And then we get a joke about Kerman having bad, bad handwriting. It's not really a joke, just more of an observation that Kerman has bad handwriting. I wouldn't call it a joke. We get our theme. For some reason, there's a shark in Statler and Waldorf's box. I guess we'll see that shark again, won't we? And then as Gonzo blows his uh, trumpet, he is run over by a herd of cows. Herd of cows? Of course I've heard of cows. He's run over by a herd of cows. They will also be back. And in greater numbers. So Kermit comes out to introduce the show and he's talking about Arlo Guthrie and how it's going to be kind of a, tonight's just going to be kind of a down home kind of show, you know. 
which is going to most of the set set pieces are going to take place in like a living room set. And uh, it's just going to be a good old down home folksy time. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. I am the frog. You are the audience. And this is the Muppet Show. It works out kind of nice that way. And the curtains open up and Kermit is in said living room um, in this kind of rustic looking house. There's like a grandmother and a baby. And, you know, I think there's a dog. And uh, Arlo uh, is at the piano and he a lot of piano these last couple of weeks. We have Borgia and, and these two. Well, I, I had a couple of notes on this one. The baby is the baby Muppet is somehow less terrifying in tandem with all of the other ones there. I guess it's just because they're pack hunters or something. I don't know. But also Statler and Waldorf made a comment about Arlo looking like he wanted to run and he kind of does. He looks directly at the camera a couple of times and it sort of looks like he wants to hold up like a, a missing person's milk pot or milk crate or something. See, I didn't get that from him as much. I got more of a just like he just kind of looks like that. <laughs> That might just be what he looks like. <laughs> you know, like it just kind of might, you know, and, and I, I don't know. I wasn't there, so I have no idea. But but I got the impression of, nah, he just kind of looks like that. He just always looks a little kind of zoinked out a little bit, you know? Mm. Who knows what the hell he's on, too? Fair point, yeah. He might be really, really happy to be there, just very bad at showing it. It's 1979. There's a non-zero percent chance that he is stoned out of his mind. Mm. As a so, protest singer? unlikely sure sure why not but uh the, the key thing you have to take away from this like the song is is fine it's a song he sings called grocery blues uh, that's one of his songs um and, and it's fun but what what is really cool about it though is there's a moment you got to pay attention there's a moment where the swedish chef leaves to go grocery shopping with, a, with an empty cart then he comes back with some stuff and a live turkey mm-hmm. got to remember the turkey we'll remember the turkey yeah, I mean it's it was it it's something different. We haven't had um, the guest star in the opening number in a while. Oh yeah, or that kind of a transition to it where you just sort of have Gurmit step back. Yeah, this is um I guess we call this a high concept episode. It's a subtle one, but yeah. So um, what did you think of um, Bird Gladys? Um, the character is Winnie. I wrote the fuck is this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I just conflated it with the turkey, but it doesn't scare me the way that Gladys did. So there's that. No, it's not scary. It's just there's this character named Winnie who Kermit's like, hey, Winnie. And Winnie apparently works for the chef or works in the kitchen. How long is yeah. Winnie going to work for the chef and in, in what capacity? I don't. I've OK. I'm going to be honest with you. I had no idea Winnie existed. I don't think we're ever going to see Winnie again. I conflated Winnie with the turkey from the last bit. Hopefully it's, a sh- it might, I believe it's a short lived character because I've never heard of freaking Winnie. But anyway, so when, so this character named Winnie, who's just the bird um, version of Gladys, uh, slightly less terrifying looking, uh, comes in and um, explains, and the chef is up on the balcony. They're going to have a big country home cooked meal tonight uh, to end the show. And the chef assumes he's doing it. And Kermit's like, no, dude, we hired a caterer. And the chef has like a, a meltdown. He breaks a bunch of plates and everything. And he has this big crying meltdown. And uh, Kermit feels guilty and says, okay, chef, you can cater tonight. You can cook the dinner tonight. Kermit's real quick to replace his people this, this week. <laughs> he's No, he said he wanted to get a caterer to give the chef a night off. And probably to avoid what ends up happening. <laughs> Fair, yeah. Then we get a strange moment where we are with the woman like the grandmother and the baby from the living room sketch. Mm-hmm. And they're watching a television. Now correct from the Chicago Livestock Board, here are the gestation periods. Gestation. Yes. Anyhow, gestation periods. Pigs, 113 days. Cows, 284 days. Horses, 337 days. And elephants, 645 days. And on the television is the Muppet Newsman. Was it season two or season one where we had that that weird sequence where we kept going further into the TV? Yeah, we did that once. And then there's a Salmon Friends that did this too, um, that we are very early on. But they, they, they show the Muppet Newsman and they kind of push past them. And then there's this cool transition where it transitions into just the Muppet News. And, you know, there's a joke about bumper crops. And, you know, as soon as he said the word bumper, you know what's coming. So, I do. Well, no, but it could have been one of two things. Like he gets, he gets hit with a giant pile of bumpers, but it could have also been maybe a bumper car joke. That would have worked. It took me a second to realize that the things falling from the ceiling, ceiling weren't some type of fish. 
Uh, and then it and then it moves back out to the woman and the baby watching it, and the woman goes, huh, "Bumpers, yeah, or bumper crops." And I was like, "That was very strange, <laughs> very strange addition to the Muppet News." Okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. The next one, my first note is just a big old meh. Um, I heard of cows sing a song called Elegance. Um, they sing in the pasture and into the house, and they get into like uh, showy costumes. Kermit Kermit comes out and introduces this number and says, "Like you know, just because we're in the country doesn't mean we can't be sophisticated." So here's some cows singing a song called Elegance. Um, I didn't really care. I'm not going to be able to tell you what happened in the sketch in about three weeks' time. Yeah, like they just—that's because they sing. They shake their cow asses at the camera a few times. They end up in formal wear at some point, don't they? But uh, I, I didn't find the song very memorable, and I didn't find the conceit very memorable. What did work for me was the Swedish chef. So the chef's the chef Kermit has given him the green light. He is going to prepare dinner for everybody. And we saw him earlier go to the store, and he came back with a. What did I tell you not to forget? The turkey. The turkey. So the chef is telling us he's going to make roast turkey. And the turkey is there. And it's, of course, still alive. <laughs> and the chef gets out the skewer to skewer the, this turkey because he's going to apparently spit roast it. So the note that I put down here was just chef the impaler because I who would have thought that the Swedish chef had more in common with Vlad than the count? See, oh, see, I put this is UFO shit. <laughs> we went in very different directions because <laughs> he because he straight he bends the turkey over to like figure out like he's showing us where the skewer is going to go and the first thing he does is like it's going to go right up his ass right that's how that's how Vlad impaled, impaled people true and uh, and it's very graphic <laughs> I was wondering how far they were going to take it if what the chef if 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 what the chef is explaining actually happened, it would be horrifying to see. He couldn't show. It can't have that on the Muppet well, Show. There's that, but also he didn't kill the turkey first, which means he was going to spit roast that turkey alive. Yeah, but the turkey ends up outwitting him and smacking him in the face with his own skewer and, and getting away. As soon as he started sizing up the skewer for the turkey, I started laughing. I didn't stop until it was I over. couldn't stop because <laughs> it's yeah. This is something that I would write. It's very dark. Like, yeah, it's very dark. Then uh, we have a, just a tiny little interstitial that reminds me of like season one almost. Hmm. Um, where Gonzo comes in to show Arlo his new guitar. Arlo's like, cool, I love guitars. And he opens it up and it's a flamingo guitar. Another pun. I thought that was a pretty decent one, though. But it's literally a flamingo. It's pink with a beak and feet. And uh, it's, it's a, a ukulele. Flamenco. Yeah, it's basically it's a ukulele dressed up like a, a pink flamingo. And it's just a play on the word flam- flam- flamenco. And um, then uh, Arlo plays it for a second and makes a little kind of generic mariachi sound with it. Um, although that was completely laid in. He doesn't actually play it. <laughs> and Gonzo does a little dance. Because Gonzo is all about that Latin flavor. There's a chicken choke in there somewhere and I'm blanking on it. <laughs> Some kind of spice or jerk chicken or something. But that's Caribbean. So then we have basically what's another at the dance. Two in a row kind of. This feels um, more like an at the dance than most of what we've seen. Where uh, at, we're on a hayfield and um, there's some Muppets. Uh, uh, there's Gramps, the old guy, um, is sitting on top of the uh, hay barrel and he's he's doing the square dance thing where he's calling out, you know, what do you do with your partner? And there's these couples dancing. But the music is a fiddle version of the at the dance theme. Um, and it ends with everyone beating the crap out of each other. Some people shouldn't be allowed a megaphone, but trigger warning violence towards women. (laughs) I mean, violence toward everyone. They that's true. Women deck the guys like two or three times. The guys are told to kick the women in the shins and then it just degrades from there. Yeah. And then it, then it turns into a brawl again, short, sweet, fine. But yeah, it's just interesting after not seeing at the dance for quite some time, we've gotten to at the dance ish sketches. So we get our UK spot. Um, a couple of members of Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers sing a horse named Bill. This is an old folk song. Should be familiar to people. It was one of the few. Is um, there's a. Um, it was on one of the few surviving episodes of Salmon Friends. It was performed by Kermit. Uh, it's one of the only sound clips we still have from Salmon Friends. This time it's performed basically prim- primarily by Jim and Jerry playing Lubbock Lou and um, I forget Jim's character's name. Pretty straightforward spot. It's this, it's the spot that the. Um, the old uh, trio would have done right mm-hmm. and uh it's okay yeah it's all right again none of these songs are really like resonating with me at all so 
I don't know why that is. Just none of the songs kind of stick with me. The only reason this next one did is because I've heard it before. Um, Arlo sits on a front porch with a bunch of cows sitting around him, and he sings "Get Along, Little Doggies," which is an old cowboy song. This is the this is the number where he sounds a little like Bob Dylan. Mm. He's kind of he's kind of got that nasally Bob Dylan voice going on in this one. I did like, I will say, he sings he sings the song half the song, or you know, a verse verse and a chorus of the song, and then he tells the cows what's really going on. <laughs> He stops and tells the cows, like, well, if you really listen to it. You know, these songs were sung by lion cowboys. I mean, what's that mean? Whoopie tie yo get along, little doggies. It's your misfortune. Ain't none of my own. That means a cowboy, he's got a gun. Them doggies unarmed. And he goes on to say, whoopie tie yo get along, little doggies. You know that Wyoming will be your new home. A lot of boom, that is. Wyoming's not gonna be their new home. They're gonna be inside a tin can outside of Kansas City. That the cowboy's got a gun and the cows don't. And at the end where it says you're going to Wyoming, you're not really going to Wyoming. You're getting fed to people. There's a red-eyed horse and a red-eyed bull, or it's either a red-eyed bull or a red-eyed cow in this particular sketch, which you're just looking at him sort of like tweaking. This whole thing was creepy. Uh-huh. And they would move along during the chorus, but I found this whole one to be kind of creepy. But um, this is the one my daughter said was boring. Fair. It's long. It's very long. My kids did not care for it. My little one was already asleep. Hmm. And my nine-year-old was this because Statler and Waldorf before this go like, hey, their sketches have gotten better. They Their sketches used to be so long and boring, and that was short and boring. And that's when she said she agreed with Statler and Waldorf. Then we go back to the kitchen with the chef. Now, the chef has failed making a roast turkey. So the next step, of course. So, Chad, I put one note, one note for this. Get the gimp. <laughs> I couldn't unsee it as soon as that pig came on their mean mugging. I was just like, Pulp Fiction bit? And then I was like, wait, that's terrible. But also... Oh, God. <laughs> Gimp's sleeping. I, I mean, the thing is, it also continues the theme from the prior one, because he was absolutely about to stick that pole someplace it wasn't supposed to go. <laughs> so just, this episode, I, I will admit this episode gets a little freaky. A little bit. Um, but like subtly so. It's sort of like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing. So the chef is going to, well, the chef wants to roast a piggy, since he can't roast a um, a turkey. And a pig comes in, but it's not like a, a pig pig like you would eat. It's an anthropomorphic Muppet pig. But he's wearing like a leather spiked collar and no shirt. Is this one of Link's leather daddy boys? Because he totally looks like he's just coming from a night, at, you know, night down in the tenderloin or something. Link could be Zed. He's a cop. He could be Zed. But I like your gimp analogy better. Yeah, he looks like the gimp. So uh, he comes out and basically... Th- smacks the chef in the face with a pan is like, you're not eating me. And he's like, okay. And I was, I'm looking at you going like, I'm not. Yes. Yes, sir. Poor chef. And then he decides he's going to have roast beef or beef. And then he gets run over by the cows in the stampede. The chef is not my, my daughter said tonight, she goes, I'm really feel, I feel really bad for the chef. He's trying his best. He's trying his best. But the thing is, she's also the Lisa Simpson of us that wants us to like, less eat less meat. <laughs> So I was like, but but he's but the animals are just defending themselves. She's like, I feel bad for the chef. Now Fozzie comes in and he is he's got a new act. Now it's just as good as his comedy act, he assures us. <laughs> but he has a new act. He's gonna come out and he's gonna recite a Robert Frost poem. <laughs> That's his act. Kermit thinks this is a terrible idea. Fozzie begs him because Fozzie bothered to actually memorize an entire poem. And <laughs> seems like that was a, a yeoman's uh that was that was quite a bit of work for Fozzie, so uh, Kermit lets him go on stage, but then Gonzo runs in and goes, Hey, my tango number's ready. And Kermit's like, dude, we're not doing that this week. And he's like, too late, buddy. <laughs> and he just runs on stage. And then we get a number of Fozzie trying to perform, trying to, um, give a reading of stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Very, very, very famous Robert Frost poem while Gonzo keeps interrupting him. Uh, with his um, tango dance with a song called Hernando's Hideaway. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening by Robert Frost. <clears throat> Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not mind if I stay here to watch his woods fill up with snow. <laughs> My little horse must think it queer. 
stop with our fun. So, can we talk about Gonzo's dance for a little bit? Mm-hmm. Because if you noticed, when Gonzo dances, he puts both of his arms up, he sort of drapes them a little bit, and he just sort of rocks backward a little bit. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to know why Gonzo's dancing like Snoop. Because he's, I'm not sure if he's crip walking or not, but he's doing <laughs> that sort of like, not quite lazy, just sort of like lean back sort of thing where he wants to keep his face on the camera. He's not doing anything that elaborate, but he doesn't need to do anything that elaborate because what he's selling is chill. And it's just, it's Gonzo doing that with the bug eyes. And it's weird. <laughs> like, there was something that was like, Snoop? It's not not Snoop. <laughs> now that you bring it up, it's a little little bit how, you know, Calvin likes to dance. <laughs> but uh, this was, I thought this was funny. Fozzie's trying to give this rendition and then Gonzo keeps bopping in. And then finally Fozzie gives in and ends up singing Robert Frost to the tune of Hernando's Hideaway. This was the highlight of the episode for me. He's so he's so upset. He's like, Gonzo just showed up. It was my time. Why is Gonzo? <laughs> yeah, no, it was really funny. And miles to go before I sleep, as Fozzie sinks at the end. And then uh, I don't know, Statler and Waldorf hit us with a really good, the bear is gone from bad to verse. So good. Yeah. Um. So we get back in the kitchen and we've got a very weary Swedish chef. He has got the crap kicked out of him. He's got his arm in a sling. He's got a bandage on his head. He's been, he's been um, smacked in the face by a turkey. He's been hit with a face with a pan by a very submissive looking pig. And uh, he's been run down by a pack of cows. He usually only gets it once an episode. Not, I said a pack of cows is a herd of cows. Of course, a herd of cows. So he has decided he's going to make vegetable stew instead. But this is the Muppet Show. And as we will learn later in the Muppet Christmas Carol, Rizzo's mom taught him, you never eat singing food. And while these don't sing, they're definitely talking. And the chef gets ready to get his vegetables into the pot and they all attack him because <laughs> he is having no luck. And I think this is when my daughter was done with the episode. <laughs> because because the chef was just getting the shit kicked out of him all night and all he wanted to do was make dinner for everybody you wanted to impress everyone he's like oh i've got a chance to shine he did not have a chance to shine he cried he begged to get this gig because they were gonna have a caterer come in but the thing is it's not even necessarily entirely his own fault that he keeps falling flat like this he went to mock swedish culinary school for this opportunity he could have bought an already dead turkey, though. Yeah, that was his screw up. That I can't defend that one. So then uh, we open up back into the living room set, and Arlo uh, and the Muppets sing a song called Sailing Down the Golden River. This is a Pete Seeger song, Pete Singer being one of the royalties of folk music. This is like season, this is like season one closer. The, the opening chords made me think that we're getting another Beatles tune because it sounds a lot like Here Comes the Sun. It's interesting. Like, this doesn't feel like a folk song to me. It feels like a 70s easy rock song, mm. the way he's singing it. And um, But this just reminded me of like a season one closer. Everyone just sits around the guest star while he uh, or she or they sing. By then, I was pretty much ready to be out of the episode. <laughs> yeah, we were all kind of there. There is a last stinger, though, because as we get ready to close out the episode, Arlo's got his arm around Miss Piggy. And he looks real yeah. guilty. And I'm just like, what was he just whispering into her ear? Was she getting her sweet nothing? I didn't catch that till the third time. Yeah, he leans over and he's like, motorcycle cop. <laughs> like, Piggy is completely nonplussed. She's like, I am here doing exactly what I want to be doing. But Arlo's like, I just got saw. I just got seen with my arm. Yeah. Around he, he spends the entire episode looking like he kind of doesn't want to be there until we see him with his arm around his piggy. Is he just there for the chicks? That's entirely it. It was going to be her or Janice. Yeah, and then, uh, the sh- but yes, Arlo is, is looks like he's trying to make time with Miss Piggy, and he retreats when Kermit comes into the scene. And then um, the chef comes and brings dinner. He has brought them a tray full of vitamins, because that's the only thing he could get them to. Everything else failed. I mean, his mobility is probably pretty limited at that point, too. Arlo looks like he's about to chow down on some vitamins. He might think there are other pills. He might. It's true. He might be like, I don't see vitamins. I just see pills. I saw horses on the show. Is this ketamine? Just kind of an underwhelming one to me. Yeah. Um, it, this Fozzie week, and Gonzo, notwithstanding, it it had a shiny points, 
both episodes had their like standout parts, but this week's were they all involve Muppets on the Muppet show. I'm just saying like the guest stars. Well, no, that's not true. I guess I guess there was um, kill a kill was involved. The guest star. Yeah, but I don't know. Just kind of they weren't uneven episodes. No, they were very like it's almost like you're bowling to try to get a split or to try to deal with a split and you just go straight down the center. Next time. You gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold them. So tune in next time for episode number 409 with actress Beverly Sills and episode 410 with my man, country legend Kenny Rogers. One of my favorite Muppet things of all time is in that episode. My mom met Kenny Rogers when she was a kid. Maybe I'll tell that story. Nice. But uh, yeah, this <laughs> Nick, prepare for nightmare fuel. Oh, thanks for the warning. Prepare for some nightmare fuel. In the Kenny Rogers episode. Okay. But uh, until we get to that, my name is Chad. My name is Nick. And thank you for listening. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, as they say in France, adios. Uh, That's Spanish. I know, I don't speak French. (laughs) 